Amen. I want to invite you to take a copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 46 and 47. And uh, we want to uh, conclude today our uh, study in Healthy Church uh, as we just sort of look through Acts, uh, those first four chapters, uh, really uh, building uh, this series out of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 down through 47. And as we uh, meet together and we look at God's Word, we want to consider for our subject today how healthy churches multiply and grow numerically. And so as we're settling into that thought, let me do just a couple of housekeeping uh, items today. We're going to receive a chicken bucket offering at the end of service. If you're new to Calvary and you say, what is that? Uh, that's just a long-standing precedent. When I came here, they would talk about a chicken bucket offering, and that I, I came to me to uh, understand that was a love offering when there was a special need that just wasn't included in the budget that would arise from time to time, we would try to meet those needs by receiving a chicken bucket. And I had shared with you last week that one of our single ladies, uh, just her HVAC was completely out. We were having brutal weather, and she was trying to warm her house with space heaters and different things. And so we want to come alongside her and help her in that. And so uh, the goal is we want to try to raise that $3,700 where she can have heat, and uh, when hot weather gets here, she can have air, and you say, Preacher, did you exhaust all avenues? We really did exhaust all avenues. Uh, that previous unit was 32 years old, and so it was just crippling along on its last leg, and so if you want to give to that, we would love for you to do that. If you came today, and you just are hearing that for the first time, or you're not prepared to give, you can give that next week just in a regular offering. Just make sure you put down either on your envelope or uh, on your check, just make sure you put uh, love offering, HVAC love offering, and uh, our ladies up front will know where that uh, needs to go. And so thank y'all for praying and being a part of that. I'm excited about your obedience, not only in giving, that's exciting news that Justin shared that we have met and are going to be surpassing our Lottie Moon goal. I thank God for his generosity. If you do, would you say amen? And uh, God is just faithful uh, to us beyond measure, and we are grateful for that. Our ladies, uh, next Titus Tuesday is coming up. Is that the second Tuesday of March? Is that right? Second Tuesday of March. And so there's sign-up sheets back here in the back. And so after service, before you head to life group or before you head out to lunch, if you all will sign up for that, we're excited for our ladies to be able to keep meeting and uh, just fellowshipping together, growing together in God's word. Uh, younger ladies learning from older ladies, older ladies investing in younger ladies and just that multi-generational uh, growth occurring in our church family. And so we want to encourage you to sign up for that as well. Acts chapter 2, verses 46 through 47. Healthy churches multiply and grow numerically. We want to think about where we've been. Uh, the first week we talked about how a healthy church ministers in the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't minister out of the power of the flesh. We minister out of the power of the Spirit. In week two, we talked about how healthy churches focus on biblical preaching and teaching. I'm excited to say to you that we, our uh, church council guys and our deacons, just met Wednesday night uh, for a time of uh, clarifying our theological biblical vision uh, here at Calvary Baptist Church. We have 12 different books we're reading each month, and so we met in February to review our book, uh, Expositional Preaching, for January. Uh, so we had a great time of studying God's Word and reviewing what we had learned. We had a great time of praying and praying for our church. And a matter of fact, I want you to grab your uh, 
uh, Connect Guide just right quick. And if you will open that up, you can join us in praying that way. And so uh, in your middle section uh, that Brian's prepared for us, ways to pray for our faith family. And that opening paragraph tells you a little bit of what I just shared. And then there's five ways that you all can join us as leaders in praying for our church family. Pray that uh, all of our pastors and teachers will handle God's word with integrity, faithfulness, and accuracy. We don't want to take that for granted. We want to make sure we let the, the scripture speak and God is exalted through that. Number two, we want to pray that our church family will have a high view of scripture and that God would give us a hunger and craving for his word. And so as we just went around the room and people were sharing how this affects Calvary and how we should be praying, one of the consensus was we just want to make sure that we're praying one for another, that God would give us a hunger and a thirst for his word and that we'd have a high view of scripture. Number three, that we would hold one another as servant leaders accountable to how we preach, teach, and handle God's word. And then number four, that we would pray that our church family will grow in their understanding of God's word to where they can identify sound teaching from false teaching. We want you all to be able to do that. We don't want anyone here to be led astray by false teaching or inaccurate uh, teaching, teaching that sounds good and it has some truth in it, but it has more error than truth and it can lead you astray and uh, cause you to not be biblical in your understanding of who Christ is and how he uh, desires to be glorified in your life. And then last but not least, pray that we would love spending time uh, knowing God through his word. And so I took a minute to highlight that because we put that in there. We want you all to pray that with us. And so our next uh, book that we're reading uh, for the month of February uh, is a book entitled Biblical Theology. And so we'll be reading that and going over that in March. And uh, more than anything, you desire to be at a church that is going to teach God's word, stand upon God's word, and try to make, God's, uh, try to make disciples according to God's plan. If you believe that to be true, say amen. Uh, we just really do. We don't want to be a gimmicky church. We don't want to be a church family that is built on things that are not true or not healthy. We want to be really sound in all that we do. And so we, in week two, talked about uh, the importance of focusing on biblical preaching and teaching. And then in week three, we focused on maintaining genuine fellowship and the importance of um, the fellowship that we have together and that commonality that we have in Christ we're going to see a little bit more of that today as we conclude this series. Week four, we talked about how healthy churches seek God through prayer. And then today, uh, we want to talk about how healthy churches multiply and how healthy churches grow. Someone once uh, asked Adrian Rogers, Adrian, we got a lot of small churches in our convention. Do you believe it's a sin to be a small church? And without hesitation, Adrian Rogers in this meeting of pastors said, I do not believe it's a sin uh, for a church to be small. He said, but I do, however, believe that it's a sin for that church to remain small. And he said, every church has the opportunity to multiply. Whether you have five and you reach one and you have 20% growth or whether you have 10 and you reach one and you have 10% growth or whatever those numbers are, we all have that opportunity to share the good news and share the gospel and see people come to faith in Christ and God add to our numbers. It is uh, just about March, right? This week at the end of the week will be March. It means baseball season is upon us. Uh, pitchers and catchers have already reported for the big leagues 
my Cubs are getting ready for a World Series run, and they won't cheat in doing it. Can somebody say amen for all you Astros fans out there? And, uh, and one of the things that I love about baseball uh, is the fact of um, being able to work with the boys. They all played Little League. As a matter of fact, I miss that. People say, don't you love basketball, Pastor? Basketball to me is a little stressful. Um, baseball was never stressful. Baseball was always just a good time to get out and enjoy the Lord's creation, be with a bunch of little kids. But I can remember when I played that concerning hitting, there was always one simple rule that was shared in various ways. I can remember my brothers teaching me this. I can remember a Little League baseball coach teaching me this. I can remember me teaching this principle and this rule to kids that I coached, to our boys. And that simple rule was this. You can't hit what you cannot see or what you don't see. You'll not make contact if you cannot hit or if you cannot see or you don't see uh, what's coming at you. you. You have to hit the ball that you see. And so there were a various bunch of phrases that we would use to teach that one principle, you can't hit what you don't see. We would say phrases like, pick up the ball early in the pitcher's hand. And so we would say like this in T-ball, right? Or, or in coach pitch, we would say, hey, watch that, watch that pitcher release that ball. Watch the ball come out of his hands. Watch it all the way in, knowing that it's really, really difficult to pick up a ball in midair. It's just really, really hard to do that. And so we would say, pick up that ball early. We'd say, keep your eyes on it. Uh, for those of you that have little kids, you've heard your coaches yell or you yell at your kids, hey, don't pull your head off, right? You've heard people say, don't pull, don't pull your head off. You've got to keep your head down on the ball. And then when they began to get advanced, we would say, hey, you've got to pick a spot on that ball. Don't just see a white blur coming in there. Really focus and, and pick a spot behind that baseball and hit that spot on that ball. We would use phrases like aim small, miss small. And then we would say things like focus. It's really important for you to focus. And so we would have little foam balls in the garage. And we'd be throwing them at these little boys. And they would have a broomstick. And they would have to hit a, a very small ball with a much smaller thing than a, a bat. And the reason would be is a smaller ball and a smaller bat meant they really had to focus and hone in on that pitch or that ball that was coming. These phrases all serve as reminders to not take your eye off the ball. And as a church family, as believers, as Christians, we need to remind one another in the church not to take our eyes off of Jesus. That is, as we delight in him and we recognize he is our all in all, that as we keep our eyes on him, he is the one who makes us healthy. He is the one that makes us fit. He is the one that makes us fruitful. See, it's really easy in the Christian life, just like it is in baseball, getting so caught up with getting, wanting to get to first base that we uh, forget the most important thing, and that is I've got to hit it before I get down there. And as Christians, sometimes we take our eyes off of Jesus and we get to thinking about, hey, we want to grow, or hey, we want to uh, be healthy, or hey, we want to reach out and do this, or we want to do that. And sometimes we get more uh, focused on the things involved with Christianity than on Christ himself. And so this morning, Luke gives us a great reminder in Acts chapter 2 about how the early church focused on the Messiah, how they focused on the new life that they had in Jesus, and how God was blessing them and multiplying and growing their church numerically. 
I mean, this first church at Jerusalem, I want you to think about it. Uh, during the days of Pentecost, the first time Peter preaches, 3,000 people are saved. The next time he preaches, after healing the man uh, who was at Solomon's porch, there's 5,000 people who are saved. Jerusalem is literally being turned upside down like Thessalonica would later be because God was moving in their midst and people were being saved. A matter of fact, in verse 47, when you see that phrase at the end of verse 47, day by day, those who were being saved, what that really means is this. It means that souls were continually being saved. Their winsome witness, their um, infectious witness was a sweet aroma of the knowledge of the Messiah Christ permeating the air in Jerusalem. And here's what Luke says. He says, for some it proved to be an aroma of life as souls were being saved by believing in Jesus. I want you to listen to what Mark MacArthur says about uh, verses 42 through 47, but particularly verses 46 and 47. He writes, uh, the Jews were continually being saved as they observed the daily conduct of these believers. They were so unified, joyful, and spirit-filled, were they, that their very existence was a powerful testimony to the truth of the gospel. True evangelism flows from the life of a healthy church. So this morning, let's look deeply at our text today and see uh, how the Jews witnessing and how they were witnessing the life of the believers that God used as a witness to the gospel. And so here's all these religious people gathered in Jerusalem, and they're gathered there for Passover. And what the Lord is doing is this tremendous, tremendous work of grace. They're seeing the grace of God at work, and they're seeing the spirit-filled life of these believers at, at work, and there's something absolutely contagious about that. I mean, these folks were... They were uh, being mesmerized by the gospel that was being evidenced in the life of these believers as they exalted Jesus Christ. So look with me at verse 46, and let's just work through these uh, verses together just line by line this morning. Healthy churches multiply and grow numerically, first of all, as we live in gospel-centered community. It says in verse 46, and day by day, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Healthy churches multiply and grow numerically as we live in gospel-centered community. See, this New Testament church experienced a new life in Christ together. Their lives had been changed. They were bearing witness to what Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man, if any woman be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have been made new. And that newness of life was at work in these believers, and those religious Jews who were gathering there in Jerusalem were witnessing. All things had become new for these believers, and this life was clearly seen in the deep community bond that was being formed in the gospel. I want you to notice that their gospel-centered community was ongoing. The Bible says, Luke says, that it was day to day. What does that mean? It means that their fellowship was not restricted to Sundays, but their fellowship in the gospel continued throughout the week. 
Christians were not content to just be uh, with one another once a week for services, but they were a true community meeting as often as possible. They met uh, informally in groups and in homes as we're about to see, but they also met formally as they would go to the temple and they would gather there. They would listen to the teaching of, of the Jews, of the, of the priests there, and as they would listen to that teaching, they would interact with people. Not all of them could get into the sound of the teaching. Some were just gathered in the outer court of the temple and they were gathered there to pray, and we'll see more about that in just a little bit. But they were, they were gathered there and they were gathered there together and then they would leave there and they would go into their homes and they would break bread together. It was a really, really neat thing that was going on there uh, in their homes and in their uh, temple area where they were going to meet and worship. They were doing life together. John Phillips says, Spirituality is not something with which we clothe ourselves just on Sunday." My brothers and sisters, the application this morning is clear. If we're to learn what uh, we should learn from this New Testament passage, it is this. While we don't meet here for formal services every day of the week, there is an encouragement to develop Christian community inside of your life groups, cross-generationally with people. Sometimes I'm concerned that we're so segmented uh, here with nursery and children's uh, ministry and student ministry and then adult ministry, that our folks are not together enough to where cross-generationally we can uh, minister one to another and encourage one another. But that was the beauty of the New Testament church. People were together and they were coming together in this gospel-centered community. And so I want to encourage you today, don't let Sundays be the only time that you do community with other believers. Uh, learn about other believers here at church. Uh, in just a couple of minutes, we're going to talk about the importance of doing mealtime and fellowship time together and breaking bread together and, and making that an important part of your life, one with the other. And so their gospel-centered community was ongoing. It was day-to-day, but their gospel-centered community gathered to pray. They not only gathered to pray, but to learn and to share and to worship. The Bible says there that they were attending the temple. And so what, what was going on there at the temple? Well, some, no doubt, would have been able to go in and hear the teaching of the rabbi on that particular day. No doubt when the rabbi would have a seat of honor and they would ask another Jew to interpret what they had heard and to interact with the text of the Old Testament that they would have had at that time, and they would have been interacting with that text no doubt these new believers were sharing uh, what Christ had done with them and how Christ was the fulfillment of that Old Testament. And so they went to learn, and they would go to share. But the New Testament church, these believers there in Jerusalem, also went to pray. I want you to think about that. There were thousands of people whose life were so dramatically changed. They would gather in the outer courts of the temple, and they would just be found praying and singing and worshiping and doing uh, life together and trying to be um, trying to worship the Lord as formally as they could inside or around that temple area. This context that they were uh, attending the temple day by day uh, refers not only to this temple in Jerusalem, it includes uh, not only the temple but all the surroundings of the temple. And most commentators agree that the new believers were in the temple 
not only praying, but learning and growing and sharing with uh, Jewish, uh, other Jewish people the practices uh, of the new Christian life. I want you to think about that for just a minute. Maybe there were some Jews there who were, they were practicing sacrificial system. They were offering sacrifices. And here's a believer who's also a Jew, but they've come in and they're no longer offering sacrifices. And the one person is saying, why are you not offering sacrifices? And that's the opportunity for them to say, well, Jesus is that sacrificial lamb for us. His life was offered up for us. He was crucified and he was resurrected and he's ascended into heaven and now he has descended in the form of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is living within us and they just had a wonderful opportunity to share the gospel with these other uh, folks who knew a lot about the law but they did not know about grace that was in Christ. And so this gospel-centered community gathered to pray and learn and share and worship as they attended the temple. But notice the last thing that Luke tells us here in verse 46 about uh, them living in gospel-centered community. It says that really they were breaking bread in their homes. Their gospel-centered community was together in community groups. Here at Calvary, we call our community groups life groups. I want to encourage you, whether you meet in a life group at the 8.30 hour or whether you meet at the 11.15 hour, we want to encourage you to meet in a life group. Life groups are just valuable uh, here at the Life of Calvary. Uh, there's no way for me to be able to fellowship every week with 500 different people. It's just really impossible for me to do that. It's impossible for Brian or Justin to do that, for Taylor to do that. But what's very possible is for us to divide uh, the larger group that comes to worship into smaller groups that we call life groups or community groups. John Stott makes an important point about the, the need of coming together in community groups and doing life together. When Luke says that they went into their houses and they broke bread together, there are two thoughts that he's conveying. One is that they were observing communion. They were observing the Lord's Supper together, which was a neat thing because they were reminding each other every day how uh, Christ had died for them, how he arose from the grave for them, and how he was coming again. And so their meeting together and their fellowship in their homes was, all, was uh, often uh, centered around the Lord's table. But then there was another thing that was going on. They were just breaking bread, doing a meal together, and they were just sharing in a meal together. Now, I want to help you understand that in just a little bit clearer way. Uh, in the New Testament, and even today in foreign countries, uh, the privilege of sitting down, being invited into someone's home, and sitting down for a meal has a much greater context and meaning to it than what it does here in America. Stott talks about it this way. Uh, he, he simply says this. Uh, in the Middle East, during this time, eating together reflected a common commitment to one another and to deep fellowship. A meal shared together was both a mark and a seal of friendship. In contemporary pagan religions, the meal formed the central rite of the religion because it established communion between the worshipers and between the worshipers and their God. 
And so during this time when people would come together, they were coming together and breaking bread in their homes. And this idea of common communion, this idea of coming together in community in their homes, sharing a meal together, had a, a much weightier meaning behind it. It still occurs today. Uh, whether I've been in Russia or whether I've been in China or been in Malaysia, whenever you share a meal with somebody, it's a really big deal. It's sort of a place of honor. You want to make sure you take a little of everything. You want to make sure that you taste it. You want to make sure you compliment it. You want to make sure that you're fellowshipping and getting to know those people around that table. My brothers and sisters, how important it is that as we live in gospel-centered community, that we understand that we need to, to keep that community going, not just on Sundays, but from day to day. Texting, praying, checking on one another, encouraging one another in the faith, taking time to break bread together, whether that's in your home or someone else's home, or whether that's going out and sharing in a meal together, and just being able to do life together. See, even in this setting right here, I don't have the opportunity to just be able to say, hey, Ethan, what's going on? with you tell me a little about training camp you know what what's going on if I really want to find that out I've got to meet with him and hear hey tell me what was the hardest part about that uh training time right uh he's not just going to stand up here and start telling me about that even now if I invited him to he'd be like no preacher I don't I don't want to and so there's this need of coming together in smaller community groups and there's this need of sharing this commonality that we have in Christ one with another. And so healthy churches multiply and grow as we live in gospel-centered community. But I want you to notice uh, something else about that. What is it that could cause us from living in that gospel-centered community? And it is um, that when we fail to realize that the commonality that we have is Christ. See, when we start to think that our common union is that we're all Baptists, we're all Southern Baptists, or when we start to think that our common ground is we're all the same age demographic, or where we this particular group all works at the same place, or this group over here are all Cubs fans, or this group over here all have kids in Little League, or this group over here, they all love to do this. When we begin to identify community in that way, we lose the sense of what true community is. D.A. Carson, uh, in his book, Love in Hard Places, said, I was preparing for a Wednesday night. I read this quote, and I thought, man, I, how, how I want to share that. It fits so good with Sunday. D.A. Carson said this about love in hard places. He said, ideally, however, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. So if you're sitting here today and you say, okay, I'm supposed to do life together with other believers and we're supposed to break bread together and we're supposed to, to recognize our uh, commonness, our commonality in Christ, but that's a little bit awkward. Uh, Carson would say it's naturally going to be awkward and this is why. He says the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education or common race common income levels or common politics or common nationalities, not a common accents or common jobs or anything of the sort. Carson says Christians come together not because they form a natural co uh, coalition, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ 
and they owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. So therefore, in this light, they are a band of natural enemies. Listen to this statement. They're a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Do you remember what your life was like when you were lost apart from Christ? Uh, Your friends, if they were your friends, it's probably because they were lost too. And the thing that they liked to do was the thing that you liked to do and your common good was surrounded by something that was not good, right? But here's what Carson says. Carson says, you know what? The church uh, is made beautiful in community when we recognize that God takes natural enemies, first of all, people who are enemies of the Lord, and enemies one with another, and he brings them together in this allegiance that's built on Christ. My brothers and sisters, we want to have unity at Calvary. Would somebody say amen? But we do not want to have unity at any cost. We want to have biblical unity, right? We want to have unity that is centered in the gospel. We want to have unity that has that comes from the understanding that Jesus has commanded us to do life together. How do we do that? I mean, it's hard to do life together. For some of us in this room, it's just hard to do life together at holidays with our family. Those of you with brothers and sisters or those of you moms and dads with lots of kids, you know, sometimes it's just hard getting everybody together in one place and pulling a meal off or pulling a birthday off or pulling an anniversary off with somebody, without somebody falling off the rails. How many of you would say, that's true in my family? Would you raise your hand? That's just the way we are as humans. We have a hard time doing that. And then if we hold our tongues and don't say anything, we get in the cars and we're on our way home, and then we start talking to our spouses and say things like, what do you think they meant by that? Well, I don't know. I didn't really hear that. Well, this is what they said. Well, maybe they just think your dessert was awful. You know, we start talking back and forth, right? We have a hard time just coming together. So how do we do, how do we demonstrate what Carson is alleging here in love in hard places? How do natural enemies come together? Well, first of all, we all have to know Christ. And then secondly, listen to this. Our allegiance to Christ has to be more important than our allegiance to one another. And when our allegiance to Christ is first and foremost, then we can find it easy to love the person who is not like us. Piper puts it this way on loving one another when when you're not alike, when there's differences in your community group. He offers these six things. I hope that you'll write them down this morning and then we'll move on to that second part of verse 46. He said in experiencing true community when there are differences in that community group, He said, let's do these things. First of all, he said, let's avoid gossiping. Piper said, let's avoid gossiping. The second thing he said is, let's identify evidences of grace in each other and speak them to each other and about each other. So what he was saying is, don't expect the worst in somebody. Look for the best in that person. And then let's agree to talk about what's best in that person, not what's worst in that person. Number three, let's speak 
criticism or opinion directly to one another if we feel the need to speak to others about it. So he's saying inside of your community group, inside of your family, inside of this fellowship where natural enemies are being brought together in Christ, what he's saying is to withstand the urge of talking about uh, someone to someone else. But if you have an opinion that you need to share with that person, be courageous enough to go and talk to them and uh, be loving enough to go and considerate enough to go and talk to them. And so let's speak criticism directly to each other if we feel the need to speak to others about it. And then number four, let's look for and assume the best motive in others' viewpoint, especially when we disagree. Just don't think that everybody's out to get you. That is a miserable life. Uh, my dad was like the world's worst at that. When we lived in Chicago, he thought that Every person who was of a different nationality was out to get him. The reason that was is we had several robberies there around our house. One time he had his, his whole big trailer hooked up with furniture that he was bringing to Glasgow to Bishop's auction house. And I mean, he had it loaded to the hill. He was taking his truck to get it gassed up. Somebody had been casing him, doing all of that work. And man, they pulled right up there in just a matter of minutes. They hooked to that trailer and they were gone. He was gone maybe 15 minutes, and in that 15 minutes, man, they took that trailer. From then on, my dad was sunk. He was like, right, there's, that thief is behind every bush. I mean, at one time, uh, guys would come, and they would yank on our basketball rim and, and on our garage, and they would bend it, and they would break it. And so my dad, uh, one day I'm seeing him, and he's got this long wire, and he's hooking it up to the back of that metal rim, and he's running this wire across the backyard into their bedroom. And on the other end's a plug. He's going to plug it in the outlet. And I said, Paul, what you going to do? He said, I'm going to light them up, right? I'm tired of putting up a new rim. And I'm just thinking, Paul, you, you can't do that, really. I, I'm thinking that now. Probably then I was like, yeah. You know, back then I was probably thinking, yeah, that was really good. I think it was my mom who was saying, no, Claude, you cannot do that. He, but he just lived his life there for such the longest time of thinking that everybody that walked by that alleyway was out to get him. You can't live life that way, my brothers and sisters. If you agree with that, say amen. you got to look for and assume the best motive in others' viewpoint, especially if you don't agree on something. Number five, he says, think often of the magnificent things we hold in common. I want you all to think of that. Think of what we hold in common. God has blessed us in the last few weeks to see three uh, people baptized. A brother and sister who followed the Lord in believer's baptism who were just saved a couple of weeks ago. Uh, teenagers who are going to have a tremendous uh, impact by God's grace on their school and on their community. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about one of our uh, new families to the church. and uh, Miss Deborah who came and she had trusted Christ some time ago but she wanted to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. She had never done that, and she wanted to be obedient to that. And We watched her demonstrate her faith and her profession of faith by following the Lord in, in baptism. I, I want you to think about those things. Think about people who have been called out of here. Think about us being able to celebrate with the Perkins just a few weeks ago. Think about this wonderful thought. As we're down here right now preaching and learning God's Word, and y'all are learning, and you're thinking, Preacher, will you hurry up? Your kids are learning the gospel upstairs, right? 
we have a team that's teaching them the gospel. They're having opportunities to sing, and they're having opportunities to learn, they're having opportunities to grow. You think about, right now we live in a community that's in need, and people are really wondering about what's going to save Glasgow. And can I just go on the record, and while there's nothing wrong with inviting Home and Garden TV to, to our community, Home and Garden TV is not going to save Glasgow. If y'all understand it, say amen. I'm all for it, right? I, if Chip and Joanna want to come, man, we'll say, you want to do a home over? I mean, a makeover here for us? I'm all for that, but can we make sure and clearly understand that there's one hope for Glasgow and his name is Jesus? And if we know Jesus, we can share Jesus. You can share Jesus in the school, in your work, in your community, in your neighborhood. And it's just really, really important that we think often of those magnificent, magnificent things that we hold in common. And last but not least, Piper says this, right? This is, how do we move past being common enemies and understand our true community in Christ when we're not all alike? And Piper says this, let's be more amazed that we are forgiven than we are right. And in that way, let's shape our relationships by the gospel. Did you hear what he said? Let's be more amazed and thrilled at the opportunity and the thought of that we're forgiven than the thought of being right. Our convention, Twitter is like the waste. It's, it's, like the, uh, it's just like the waste bin. It's, it's just like the landfill for people who are just going bonkers now talking about issues in our Southern Baptist Convention. And people are spewing trash, and people are spewing trash, and I just think, my great land of mighty, you guys are called to be pastors, and you're called to be teachers, and you've been entrusted with the gospel, and what you're doing is you're running people over on Twitter, right? I understand that happens uh, on social media, but I want to say to you, my brothers and sisters, we need to think about continually and be amazed. I don't have to win a theological argument or debate. I don't have to be considered right in everything that ever goes on because the greatest thing that's ever happened to me has already happened, and it is that we have been made, we have been forgiven and made new in Christ. What's greater than that? Right? Who cares what Uncle Joe thinks about you if Jesus says you're all right and you're forgiven? Just love old Uncle Joe and go on. If you understand it, say amen. That's all point number one. Whoo! Number two. Healthy churches multiply and grow numerically as we live in this gospel-centered community. This community is a wonderful witness to the world. But healthy churches grow and multiply numerically as we exhibit grace-given joyfulness. Look at verse 46, that last point. In verse 46, it says, They receive their food, they're in their houses, experiencing this community, and it says they receive their food, and I want you to notice these two words, with glad and generous hearts. Generous may be translated in some of yours, with simplicity or simple hearts. Some may be with sincere hearts. Uh, the glad may be 
uh, translated in one of your scriptures as joyful. I would say to you that healthy churches multiply and grow as we exhibit grace-given joyfulness. Grace-given joyfulness. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. Now I want you to understand this word, glad. This word that can be translated for us and better understood for us as joyous. This is not that they were just thankful for their meal, although they were. This is not that they were just uh, humble and with real solidarity, with real focus on God's goodness and grace at work in their heart. They, in humility, received their food and they ate their food. It's that, but it's much more. This word for gladness means extreme joy. And it's not only extreme joy, but what makes the joy extreme is that that joy was often, oftentimes accompanied by words and songs and bodily movements such as jumping and smiling, etc. Uh, if you saw what they were doing uh, this week in Jerusalem, there were some meeting around the old temple wall and there were people, Jews, who were just dancing and celebrating and holding hands and, and skipping in a circle. And somebody tweeted and said, uh, this is what the Christian community ought to look like. Authentic Christian community. These people were just excited to be there. This word gladness describes these disciples as being unafraid to show the deep down joy over their newfound knowledge of Christ as the Messiah and how they could have new life in Him. For they were now no longer under the law, but they were under grace. And the idea, listen to this, the idea that they were no longer bound to a sacrificial system that could not save them, but they were saved by grace in Jesus Christ. It, it caused them to be tremendously joyful. We describe joy or we define gladness as a feeling characterized by Pleasure, contentment, and joy. The idea is this. These folks were exhibiting enthusiastic joy. Can I ask you a question this morning? Is the joy of the Lord in your heart and life? No matter your circumstances, no matter what's going on in your life, at the end of the day, do you have joy in the Lord? I want to tell you something, my brothers and sisters. If you're saved and you're forgiven and you know Him, God intends for us to not only walk in that joy, but to exhibit grace-given joyfulness. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. And that idea of generosity or that idea of singleness of heart, it's the idea of that they knew that it was God who was their provision. It wasn't just the family that they were with. It wasn't just the community that they were with. But it was the idea that God loved them, that God was providing for them, and this new relationship they have with the Messiah had changed them forever. I'm thankful, man, for the body of Christ. I would not be the man I am today apart from God working through the body of Christ. I wouldn't be the pastor. I am the believer that I am today if God had not used faithful people to encourage me and to challenge me. I'm a glass half empty type of guy. Are any of y'all like that? If you see the world half empty rather than half full, will you raise your hand 
if it's half empty, raise them high. Don't be ashamed of it. All of us, right, need help. It's just like, um, man, it's always uh, just about to fall off or something's about to break or something's not always right. So consequently, I love being around people who are not like that. I love being around people who are just absolutely joyful because, man, it, it thrills my heart. It challenges me. It helps me to grow. If my wife was a, a glass half-empty type person, she and I both would be dead. But she is the glass half-full, always full, it's always good type of person. That so absolutely thrills me and encourages me. I get up in the morning and I'm doing my thing and uh, Jacob got this new thing, what's it called? Uh, Alexa. And he's got it in the bathroom and he got it for Christmas. Y'all are thinking, Alexa, that's real old. But for me, it's new. And, and he's got it in the bathroom. It's the neatest thing. I can walk by and say, you know, uh, play Baton Rouge, you know, or something like that. Man, it'll just start playing, you know. And so it's, it's really a neat thing. But he's up in the morning and he's getting ready. And, man, I'm hearing him calling out these songs. Alexa, stop, play this worship song, play this, play that. And he's playing this music, and I'm thinking, man, I'm thankful the Lord's given that boy joy because I'm not always the most joyful person because I see the world in a, a different way. But I want you to know, when Jesus changes you, whether you're seeing it all the way full, all the way empty, or somewhere in between, you ought to be able to lay your head down at night and be able to know the joy of the Lord is my strength. It is the joy of the Lord that goes before us and that we can have true contentment and grace-given joyfulness because who Jesus is. If you believe that, would you say amen? So healthy churches multiply they were growing in the New Testament. This is before the persecution really set in. And there was this just this infectious, contagious, spirit-filled group of believers. They were experiencing grace-given joyfulness. They were experiencing gospel-centered communities. And then they were worshiping with spirit-filled praises. Healthy churches multiply and grow numerically as we worship with spirit-filled praises. Stand to your feet as we consider this last verse together. When Luke says they were praising God in verse 47 and having favor with all the people, this word for praising is they were enthusiastically singing. They were testifying of God's grace at work in their life. This, the um, psalms that they had been singing their whole life as Orthodox Jews were beginning to take on new meaning. They didn't need a brand new song right then. There's nothing wrong with brand new songs. I love new songs. But church, sometimes we don't need a new song. We need to sing an old song in a new way. What do you mean, preacher? I mean, sometimes we just need to be so gospel-centered in our community and we just need to be uh, so absolutely full of God's joy that he has given us because of his grace 
that we worship with spirit-filled praises, just praising God and thanking Him for who He is and what He has done. Before I knew Christ, I'm just going to tell you the way it was. When I would go, I'll, I'll fast forward real late. I'm a teenager, and Christmas or Easter or Mother's Day, Mom would say, let's go to church. There's a church in Edmonton we'd go to. We sat in the second uh, row from the back on this side right here, and we always sat right at toward the end. I always made sure I was on the end because when it was over, I was out. When the thing was starting, I was the last one in, and then when it was over, I'm first one out. Uh, the plates would come by. We'd throw them plates by. Uh, we would sit back there, and we would grip that pew, right? And why would I grip that pew? Because I was tremendously uncomfortable being there. And so that place would sing songs like In the Garden, and they would sing songs like How Great Thou Art, or a song like we sang this morning, Victory in Jesus. And man, I would grip that pew, and I would stand there, and I would look, and I would just think, what are these people doing? And then I would think, I don't believe that. And then I would think, how awkward would this be for me to start singing, right? 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, going to church once a year, twice a year, and I'm just sitting there thinking, this is just not, this is just not normal. But can I tell you, when God saved me, and he forgave me of my sins, he put a new praise and a new song in my heart. And I can remember going to this little church uh, for the very first time called Grace Union Baptist Church out on Subtle Ridge, and I can remember going in and sitting down. It was a Sunday night service, and I had just newly been saved and baptized, and I went in there and I sat, and they were singing out of this heavenly highway hymnal. I, if you're young and you're new to the church, you don't know what that is. It's okay. But I mean, it's like every one of these songs was just like a, man, it was a, it was a tap your hand type of song. It was moving on, you know, and singing about the glory of Jesus and all of that stuff. And I can remember when they got to victory in Jesus. And man, this church was a singing church. They had people singing different parts. And I'm not talking about up here on the praise team. I'm seeing people in the congregation were just singing different parts. And I didn't know what parts to sing. Probably didn't sing the right part. I'm confident I sang off tune. But for the first time, I can remember Grace Union Baptist Church a Sunday night after I was baptized singing Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. And for the first time I thought, that's me. God did this for me. You know what happened? God took this punk, rebellious kid from Chicago and put a song of praise in his heart. I no longer had to sing Alabama, although there's nothing wrong with Alabama. I no longer had to sing ZZ Top. She's got legs. I, I no longer had to sing that. You know what I could sing? I could sing hymns of the faith that I was learning about Christ and what he had done in me. And it was just natural to be able to sing those and learn them. Can I encourage you to bear that 
witness. Continue to invite people. But grow in your gospel-centered community. Grow in your grace-given joyfulness. If God is for you, church family, who can possibly be against you? Rest in that. And then worship with spirit-filled praises. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Sovereign conversion growth. God was adding. It's the only way someone can join the church and be a true member of the church. God was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Church family, I want to lead us to be the most healthy church that we can possibly be. If you want to be that type of healthy church, would you affirm that by holding your hand high and just keeping it up for a second? Now, can we, can we make that our prayer this morning? Just hold your hand high and let's make that our prayer. God, we love you and we thank you, Lord, for the changed life that we have in Christ. And Lord, we're thankful that just as these New Testament believers were experiencing a crucified Jesus who took away their sin, a resurrected Jesus who had victory over their sin, victory over the grave, victory over death, God, will you remind us of the treasure that is ours because of the great work that Christ has done for us. So, Lord, we lift our hands today, and, Lord, we ask that you would make us a healthy church. God, will you help us not to take our eye off of Jesus? God, will you help us to keep our head on the things that you've done for us? And, God, who you are and what you want to accomplish in our midst. God, will you add to our church daily those who are being saved as you witness the life-changing power of the gospel in and through us. As you lead us to share the gospel, not just in lifestyle evangelism, but as we open our mouths to speak of the glory of the gospel, may it be authenticated in the way that we love one another in community, in the way that we express joy because of your grace. And God, in the way that, uh, Lord, we just praise you for who you are. So God, have your way in this place today. Lord, we pray for Bobby, Ricky's dad, and as he's traveling there to minister with his dad and to be there for him, I pray, God, that you would work in measurable ways in Ricky's life and his dad's life. Lord, we pray today for everyone who's coming to this place, weak and heavy laden. I pray, God, that Lord, they have seen you high and lifted up. And God, that they would cast their cares to you, knowing that you care for them. God, I pray for those who have come into this place. and Maybe they don't know you as Lord and Savior yet. And the thought of this authentic community and singing and all of that just is a little unsettling to them. God, I pray that you will just move them from wherever they are right now to just a little bit better understanding of the gospel. And Lord, in your timing, in your impeccable way, God, I pray that you'll just continue to work grace. Lord, as we close the service today, lifting our voices to you, will you help us sing as the redeemed of the Lord? Will you help us to call out to you? Will you help us to worship you? Is our prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen.
And everyone said amen. Let's sing like the redeemed of the war.